0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Let's face it, we all get beaten down in life. Whether it's catastrophes like hurricanes, shootings, or economic meltdowns, or just dealing with the day-to-day demands and responsibilities of life, we all go through periods of dryness, feeling like we aren't making a difference. This is where Elijah's example is particularly pertinent. Having reached the peak of his influence and achieved a mighty victory over the prophets of Baal and Asherah, Elijah still found himself on the run for the government, hunting him like a dog. In the deepest time of despair and discouragement, we encounter a message that can help us today as well. God told Elijah that he wasn't done with him yet. I believe God's not done with you yet either. He has work for you to do. Here now is podcast 112, God's Not Done With You Yet. We meet Elijah in the Bible in the middle of his life. We don't know much about him growing up. We don't know anything about his calling. A lot of times with the prophets, you get an inside scoop on how God called that prophet in the first place. He just sort of appears on the pages of Scripture. And in his time, he was living in a post-Yahweh age, much as people are calling our society today a post-Christian age. Elijah lived in a post-Yahweh age. The king before the current king in his time was a man named Omri, and Omri had established the kingdom of Israel to be an economic powerhouse. Times were good, people had money, and part of that was marrying his son, Ahab, who later became the king, to a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. And see, Jezebel was a good marriage alliance for his son because she represented the city of Tyre and the city of Tyre was a mighty place of trade. And so it helped to keep things going economically. Well, eventually Omri died and his son Ahab and his queen Jezebel took over in Israel. And Ahab built her a house, a house for her god, a god named Baal. And she didn't worship Yahweh, she was from Tyre, and in Tyre you worship Baal, you don't, and you worship Asherah, which is Baal's goddess, his consort. And so he built her a house, but she wasn't content with just having a temple to her God in the capital of Samaria. She also wanted to make Baal the chief deity of Israel. Now Israel had traditionally been the people of Yahweh, Right now, at this time, you have the northern part and the southern part. You have Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. Judah is still serving Yahweh. They have the temple there. They're offering sacrifices. But in the north, things have been a little different for some time. And so there, there are different options. Some people want to worship these, these golden calves. Other people want to worship Baal. Other people want to stick to Yahweh. Well, Jezebel's not happy about that. She's not satisfied with tolerance. She's not satisfied to be inclusive, which is what she was receiving. She was receiving tolerance and inclusiveness. She wanted to establish Baal worship as the chief faith of the land. And she's the queen. So if you're the queen, all you got to do is convince the king and boom, stuff can happen. She starts uh, officially supporting Baal worship. She gets together 450 prophets of Baal and she establishes them at her table. In other words, she pays for their food. And then she gets 400 prophets of Asherah and she does the same with them. She establishes these priesthoods of these false gods. And then, as if that wasn't enough, she went off on a persecution quest to wipe out the prophets of Yahweh because you, you don't want to have competition. She wants to establish this worship of this false god. In fact, there's this time where a guy named Obadiah, a top government official, had to save 100 prophets of Yahweh in caves. Can you imagine that? being uh, Living in a cave for fear of your life and that he brought them food and water. Most people in Israel did what would be considered the smart thing. They just got on board with the new change. They just went along with it. They started worshiping Baal and Asherah instead of Yahweh. Baal was a weather god. A lot of times we call him Baal, but the proper way to say it is Baal. He's a weather god. We learned this from a city called Ugarit. Ugarit was a city in, in modern day Syria that has historical records that go back to 1400 or 1500 BC. So that's a long time ago. And they talk about Baal in, in Ugarit. And they say that Baal is the god of the weather. Baal is the god of the rain and of the clouds and of lightning. And a lot of times Baal was also associated with a bull. Let's go to the first verse there in First Kings 17. First 1 Kings 17.1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, and in most of our Bibles, that's going to be capitalized, L-O-R-D. That's the proper name of God, Yahweh. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. It's interesting, Elijah's name, way well, he would have said it is Elia. Okay, so Eli is the Hebrew word. It means my God. Yah is a shortened form for Yahweh, right? So Elijah's very name means my God is Yahweh. Perfect guy for the job, right? I mean, what's going on? Ahab is a wimp, he's a wuss. He does whatever the queen wants him to do. He's got no backbone at all to stand up for the beliefs of the true God. He's like, you want a house to Baal? Okay, you want 850 people on the state treasury to support? Sure, honey, whatever. And now she's going through the land, killing off the prophets of Yahweh. Ahab's like, okay, whatever. Later on, he wants a piece of land and he's, he's, she finds, it's, it's pathetic, she finds him in his room crying and she says, oh, what's the matter, Ahab? He says, well, I want this piece of land and Naboth won't sell it to me. She goes out and she gets the job done. She has Naboth falsely accused and then murdered. And she says, there you go. Is that better, honey? This is a dysfunctional couple. All right. (laughs) We're not going to get into all that. But Elijah comes to the king and he says to the king. As Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, that is a bold assertion. The king would say, well, says you. So far as I can see, Baal is the God of Israel. Asherah is the goddess of Israel. Yahweh not. what are you talking about, Elijah? My God is Yah. Okay. Who is this guy? But it doesn't, it doesn't affect Elijah. Let's read it again. Verse 1. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He is going... I mean, that's <laughs> such a big statement. Think of, could you imagine this? Going to the president of the United States and saying, it's not going to rain until I say so. I mean... Either you're crazy or you're, you're courageous. What, well, you're definitely courageous either way. Either you're called of God or you're crazy. I mean, that's really the only two options left there. Or you've got a weather ray gun or something. I don't think that's been invented yet. It's just in the cartoons. So what are we, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a direct confrontation to Baal on his home turf. He's the weather God. Elijah says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, no rain. Whoa! Well, if Baal is really the weather god, he can still make it rain. Now, why is rain such a big deal? You're in an agrarian society, everybody's farming, you need to have the rains during the rainy season and you need to be dry during the dry season. And if that doesn't happen, you're you're going to have widespread devastation. The economic excitement and flourishing is going to come to a screeching halt the moment the rain stops in that kind of a society. Well, in most kinds of societies, in fact. Go over to chapter 18, verse 5. What must Ahab have thought when he met Elijah? What must Ahab have thought? He probably thought to himself, okay, here's another wacky prophet. Right? It's not going to rain. Okay, Elijah, sure, buddy. We'll see about that. These Yahweh prophets, they need to get with the times. You need to stop holding back progress. You need to get on board with the new age. Stop being so narrow-minded. You worship Yahweh, I worship Baal, you worship Asherah, I can worship whoever I want to worship. Why are you being so narrow-minded and backwards, Elijah? Ahab probably thought to himself, this thing's a joke, and then a week passed, no rain. Big deal, a week. So what? A month passes, no rain. Now it's sort of, sort of like dawning on him that like maybe, no. No, no, he's just a crazy guy. I mean, Elijah is described as a man, and I, I wanted to wear my camel hair sports jacket, but I realized I had gotten rid of both of them, which is sad, because for such a time as this, a camel hair jacket would have really worked. But uh, Elijah wore a camel hair coat, and he had a leather belt on, and he was kind of a wild man. And so Ahab probably thought, ah, no. And then the rainy season comes, but there's no rain. Oh, this is not good. So what do you do when there's no rain? Do you repent of worshiping false gods and return to the one true God? No. What you do is you pray to the weather God. What you do is you offer sacrifices to to him and hope for the best. So there's no rain for the whole first year. After a year, it's starting to get really suspicious. After a year, what do you have? You have uh, those little creeks, those little runoffs, little brooks. They dry up. right? And those of you who read this before, you know that Elijah's camped out by one of these brooks. And God's got a way to feed him during this time. And so then a second year passes. Now your crops aren't producing. right? The grass is dying. Your cattle is dying. Then comes the third year. Ahab believes that it's Elijah. I mean, come on. After three years, no rain. A guy said to you the first day it stopped raining. He said, thus says Yahweh, no rain. It didn't rain for three years. I mean, you have to be totally in denial to not accept that Elijah has sent. So he comes to believe it is Elijah. But he concludes Elijah's the problem. So he he puts out a manhunt to go get Elijah. And he's going to go into every nation, and he's going to find Elijah. And then when he gets Elijah, he's going to force him to make it rain. What does Elijah say? Elijah once again said, and his name means my God is Yahweh. He says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. There shall be no rain for these years until my word, right? Thus says Yahweh. So Ahab is still not recognizing Yahweh. As he, he's like the first thing he still doesn't get. And there's a theological question here too, right? What's the theological question? If Baal's so great, why doesn't it rain? If he's the weather God, I mean, where, what happened to our God? You know, you've got this big house of Baal in the capital, all these prophets, 850 of them, that are just like, oh, Baal, you're so awesome. Asherah, you're, you're like the queen of fertility or whatever. I don't know what their worship was like. Uh, and, and, and the, and, but yet yeah, there's no rain. So there's a theological question. This, you know, if you think about it, this is just like what Yahweh did to the Egyptian gods, right? Like the frog god, they worshipped the frog god. His name was Hecht. They worshiped a sky god called Nut. He was nuts. (laughs) They worshiped these gods, and what does Yahweh do? He beats them on their own terms every time, right? So you've got a weather god, all right. A weather god associated with bulls. I know. Let's make it stop raining and then have a bull sacrifice contest. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. So after three and a half years, and Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Verse 6, so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you? My lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me as Yahweh your God lives? There's an interesting phrase there. As Yahweh your God lives. There is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Come on, Elijah. Verse 12, and as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of Yahweh will carry you and I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. And he starts talking about how he saved these prophets, right? I mean, you can understand Obadiah's position here. There's been a, an all-out manhunt for Elijah for years. And now Elijah just pops up out of nowhere. Hey, I'm here. I want to see the king. What? Elijah's calling out the king? King's been looking for Elijah for three and a half years. Well, maybe three years. Maybe it took him a half year before he's like, oh yeah, maybe he does. Maybe, maybe Elijah is right about this rain thing, right? And so can you imagine that Obadiah goes and sends for Ahab and gets Ahab. He comes back to the spot and Elijah's gone. (laughs) He's like, "I, I can't, I can't do this. Verse 15, Elijah said, as Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand. Look at that confidence. I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. After three and a half years, he goes to meet Ahab, and the question is, what does Ahab think? What is his interpretation? What does he believe about everything? Does he believe, does he understand that Baal is dead? Does he understand that? Or does he, does he understand that Baal is impotent? He's a weak God? No. No. He does not understand what Elijah said. What did Elijah said? Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? That Yahweh is the living God. He's better than Baal. And that's the one that Israel should be worshiping. Verse 17. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) Ahab's blaming Elijah, the messenger, for the problem with the rain. Whose fault is the problem with the rain? Oh, maybe the government that's persecuting all of the true prophets of God, right? Maybe the man who has so allowed this false influence to come into the kingdom that now he's supporting with the taxes of the people, 850 false prophets. Maybe it's his fault. No, it's Elijah's fault. Verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel. Look at Elijah. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, says Omri, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Wow. Look at that boldness. He's standing before the man who wants to kill him. He's standing before the king who has all the power. Elijah's been in hiding for three and a half years. He comes out of hiding. He's just like he was when he went into hiding. He says, no, you're the problem, king. It's not me. It's you. That's a bold prophet. That's a bold prophet. He's speaking truth to power. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together. He's a weak man. He's just like, all right, whatever. We'll do it. (laughs) Like if I was a king, I would just be like, gotcha. Stab him. Done. You know, but he's like, all right. Well, yeah, he told me to go to the mountain. So I guess I'll go. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. You have 850 verses 1. And Elijah says, those odds are, are just fine with me. Those odds are just fine with me. We're gonna have a competition. We're gonna have a contest. What we're gonna do is we're gonna get two bulls. You get a bull, I get a bull. We're gonna call to our two gods. You call to your God, I'm gonna call to my God. And the God who answers with fire, that's the true God. How about that? And everyone's just like, yeah, yeah that sounds perfectly reasonable. Elijah doesn't realize that Baal, one of his things is weather. You know, he could send down a bolt of lightning. this is his specialty. Elijah's so stupid. He doesn't realize. First of all, we got 850 people calling on our gods to one. This guy's gonna lose. And you know what? Even if he doesn't lose, he's still dead. He's a marked man. The king's been looking for him for three years. So either his dog and pony show You know, whatever happens here, we win. After all, Jezebel supports us. She's the queen. There's a lot of confidence in these people at this this moment. So they get the two bulls. The Baal worshipers take their bull. They kill it. They butcher it. They set it out on the altar. And they start crying out. And what they cry out is, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And it says that they limped around the altar. I don't know what that is. I'm just going to limp around a little bit. Can you imagine that? I'm just one guy, but multiply me by 450. And they're all limping around the altar. Oh, Baal, oh, answer us, right? Around and around. This is like they're working it up. This is not a prayer. This is working it up, okay? And then at noon, look at verse 27. This is one of, like, the funniest verses in the whole Bible. Eighteen twenty-seven. at noon, Elijah mocked them. You get the impression he's kind of, like, sitting there with his legs crossed, like, just giggling, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. That's what we call trash talk. Alright, now in the basketball court we know what this sounds like, but if you're having a God competition now, you know how trash talk sounds in that context, right? Oh, maybe he's in the bathroom, guys. Maybe he's relieving himself. Speak up a little bit. He's daring them, right? They're they're all there limping around, crying out, oh ball. Elijah's like, maybe he can't hear you. Speak up. <laughs> And so they do. He's goading them on. And so what they start doing is they start getting desperate. And what do you do when you're desperate? You get louder. And it says that they started cutting themselves with swords and lances. Can you imagine that? Somebody gets a sword and, and, you, and you, you cut your hand, maybe, and you start bleeding. And then somebody else cuts their arm or cuts their back or whatever they do. And now they're, now they're jumping around in this weird, like, weather God dance to get the attention of their God. And they're shouting out and they're desperate. I mean, you just imagine what the ground looked like with all these people bleeding all over the place. What kind of a scene are we talking about here? We're talking about a group of people who are absolutely desperate to make their God perform, to make their God prove himself as being the true weather God, the fire God. And then we get to Elijah, and it says that they raved through the midday. I don't know how, it ended. maybe it petered out, maybe the wood broke. I don't know what happened, but at some point they stopped. They're just like, all right, it didn't happen. But it's probably not going to happen for you either. So Elijah calls all the people together. He brings them in, and he repairs the altar of Yahweh. The altar of Yahweh had been broken down. And he gets 12 stones together, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he builds that altar and he puts the bull on it. And then he prays. Well, actually, before he prays, he digs a trench around it. It's just unbelievable, right? Those of you who read this before, he digs a trench around the altar. Enough for three and a half gallons of water. Okay, And he has them fill up four jars of water. And he says, pour it on top. So they take these four jars of water and they pour it on top of the bull. Now, the, the whole point of a sacrifice, we're not, this is not our culture, but like the whole point of a sacrifice is to burn it. So like putting water on, probably not very helpful. I'm sure the prophets of Baal were like, yeah, go ahead, put some more water on it. <laughs> go ahead, Elijah. So he pours water on it and it it, it gets the the animal wet and it gets the wood underneath it wet and it gets the rocks underneath that wet. And then he says, do it again, do it a second time. And now it's, it's soaking, it's sopping wet, the wood. And then he says, do it a third time. Now the water is running around the trench that he had dug. It's soaked. And then we get to verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Lest you think that Elijah was some hot shot maverick who was just coming up with ideas to make it look good. He had done all these things at Yahweh's word. This was all for God to get glory. This was all for God to show Who he really is over against all these false ideas about these other gods. Verse 37 Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. One prayer, one time. Verse 38 Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Woo! You imagine that? That moment fire <laughs> Look at the response of the people here, verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, "Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we are on board with Yahweh now. Yes. Yah- <laughs> Yahweh's God. No question about it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine what that must have been like? How would Elijah feel at that moment right there? Just, he would just, he'd be like a balloon, just like floating across the ground, you know, like, I told you it was going to work. So excited. And then next after that, what Elijah does is he gathers up those prophets of Baal and he has them all executed. He has them all executed, 850 of them. Not just the, the Baal prophets, but the Asherah ones too. And... He goes up to the very summit of the mountain, to the summit of Carmel. And he he sits there at the top of the mountain. He's probably exhausted from this whole thing. He sits there and he says he puts his head between his knees. He's just kind of like very mellow. And his servant comes back and his servant says, I don't see anything. And he sends him a second time. Go look again. I don't see anything. Go back again. Go look toward the sea. There's nothing. There's nothing there, Elijah. And he's just sitting there on the summit of the mountain with his head between his knees. He said, Go again. Seven times. You imagine being that servant? Like how annoying that must have been? Like, there's nothing. There's nothing. Go again. <laughs> you know, like about time number six, right? He's like, This is so dumb, but this guy just called fire down from heaven, so I'm going to obey. Seventh time he gets there, he looks and he says, I see a a cloud like a man's hand coming out of the ocean. Elijah says, it's going to rain. Now, to us, that's not that big a deal. Three and a half years with no rain, the weather God is now dead. Yahweh's going to make it rain. And when he makes it rain, it's not going to be like a sprinkle, okay? This is going to be a downpour. This is going to be three and a half years worth of uh, waiting, and now finally the torrent. And so Elijah, at this point, is concerned about Ahab. There's a, there's a piece of land, actually, between Mount Carmel and Jezreel, where, where they have to go back to, where uh, if it rains and you're in a chariot, you can easily get stuck, and it can also turn into a very dangerous situation where there could be a flash flood in that region. So Elijah says to Ahab, get in your chariot. We got to go now. And he, he starts to run before Ahab's chariot, which was a pretty common custom that you have runners go before the chariot and they're kind of leading the way. And so Elijah does that. Look at verse 46. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That little line there doesn't quite communicate what happened here unless you know the geography a little bit. We're talking about a 17-mile run. Anyone ever run 17 miles before in the room here? I know Brother Jared's run 17. Dan's run 17. There there are a few of us that have run 17 miles. What's that like, Dan? Terrible. (laughs) Running 17 miles is it's grueling, yeah. I mean, like, by the time you're done with it, you're just like, oh, I'm done, right? But you have this also sense of satisfaction, like, this body just went 17 miles, right? You have that sense of excitement, like, I've just gone farther than I've ever gone before, right? And uh, so Elijah does it. He runs before the chariot. He goes to 17 miles. He gets there. Elijah is at the absolute pinnacle of his, of his life. Right. I mean, look, his whole life is wrapped up in his name, which means my God is Yahweh. Right. That's 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 who he is as, as a man, as a person, as a prophet. My God is Yahweh. He's living in a time of prosperity where the government is, is pushing the people towards a false religion. And he's seeing this happen throughout his lifetime, and he's doing everything he can to stay true to God, to stay true to Yahweh. He's seen it all come and go, And, and, and in the last few years here, since Jezebel has really ramped up her persecution and killed his friends, Elijah has been in hiding, a fugitive, for three and a half years, and now finally he's out. He's in the open. He's just confronted the king. He's just executed all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He's just run 17 miles. Pinnacle, right? That's the peak. He gets a messenger. Because Ahab got home safely, and he told Jezebel what happened. Now, is Jezebel the type to to repent of her sins or to play dead or say, oh, well, I I guess the religious reforms didn't work? Is that Jezebel? No, you don't know Jezebel, if that's what you think. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says to him, thus may the gods do to me and more if you're not dead within 24 hours. Elijah is completely undone. He's just like, oh, and he has to run away. He has to run away into hiding again. You know, he thought this was it. He thought this was revival, that the people would be coming back to the true God. I mean, how could you not fire from heaven? It's not revival. It's still, you're going to be dead, Elijah. You're going to be dead. You're still alone. That's what he comes to conclude. Look at um, chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if you do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He arose. Can you imagine that? Verse 3. That blows my mind. He was afraid. This great man, this one who stood before the king and said, No, you're the troubler of Israel. He was afraid. He was afraid. And it says he arose and ran for his life. And he ran out of the country. He, he left Israel. He went to Judah. He went all the way through Judah to the very southernmost part to a place called Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. He's done. He's over. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Servant, you stay here. There's no there's no need to, to come with me. I'm out. And he keeps journeying. He goes a day's journey, verse 4, into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Yahweh. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah says, I'm done. I quit. I can't beat this. I'm exhausted. I've done everything that you told me to do. They still want to kill me. There's There's no hope. I'm done. I quit. And in his despair, he falls asleep. When you're really depressed, you fall asleep, right? And God sends an angel to make him some food. <laughs> it's like, pretty cool. And, and, he, and he makes this food and the angel kind of taps him and he says to him, wake up, buddy. Wake up. Cooked you a meal. Angel must have been Italian, right? And, uh, he goes over and he eats the food and he feels better. He feels better. And he goes back to sleep a second time. Once again, God sends the angel, wake up Elijah, gives him some more food. And this, this is like the original angel food cake. On the strength of this food, he goes 40 days and he journeys on kind of like a walkabout all the way to the original starting place of the nation of Israel, to Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. He goes to the great mountain that God came down on and lit on fire in the beginning when he gave the Ten Commandments. That's the mountain, which is not in Israel's territory. I mean, it's way over towards Egypt because they just got out of Egypt when they went to this mountain. So it's kind of between Egypt and Israel in a desert place. Elijah gets there and he doesn't know what to say. He wants to quit. He wants to quit. Look at chapter 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that interesting? What are you doing here? You're supposed to be a prophet in northern Israel. What are you doing all the way here in the desert by Africa at this mountain? What are you doing here? Elijah's got his prepared response. Verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That's that's how he feels. That's where he's at. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. And there there are three kinds of modes here, right? The first is this great strong wind that tore mountains and broken pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. right? So now the ground's moving, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Still small voice. So Elijah saw all the fireworks, right? So, oh, this God's so impressive. I mean, Elijah doesn't doubt God exists. That's not the problem. The problem is his knucklehead countrymen who don't want to worship the God who exists, whose name, Yahweh, means the existing one. They don't want to worship him. He can't do anything. Everything he's tried has failed. And now he's a wanted man again. He can't do another three and a half years with, with some widow and her son. He can't. He's done. He can't, he can't sit by a brook and have ravens come and, and, and drop little bits of meat. He's done with that. Like, he can't be in high... You, you have a limit. Everybody has a limit. Like, how long can you hang out by yourself in a cave? He's done. And God shows him all this impressive stuff, but he doesn't need to see all the fireworks. He needs a word from the Lord. That's what he needs. He needs to hear a word from the Lord. And it says in verse 13, And when Elijah heard it, the soft whisper. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he said, I have been very jealous. Same exact line, right? I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go. (laughs) What are you doing here? Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha... The son of Shaphat of abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hezael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, who, the knees of those who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What does God say to Elijah in his moment of greatest despair? He says, I'm not done with you yet. He, 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 there's not really a lot of comforting words here. I don't know if you noticed that. It was like very clear instruction on what to do next. His message to Elijah is, I'm not done with you yet. God's not done with him yet. You've got work to do. Quitting's not an option. Get up and go. And, and, and where he sends him to, Damascus, is now farther than when he, where he started from. He started from Israel, and he went to Judah, which is south. And then he went to Mount Sinai, which is way south And West he sends him all the way north above Israel to Damascus the capital of Syria and he's gonna have him anoint a foreign king there and then he's gonna have him anoint another king over Israel instead of Ahab and then he's gonna anoint his own successor to take over for him because you're not just gonna quit with no plan God's got a plan and this is what it is get up and go I'm not done with you yet that's what God says to Elijah it reminds me of Peter After he denied our Lord. Can you imagine that? You had your moment. Like, it's even worse, though, because if you think about Peter and Jesus, right? Jesus had even told Peter he was going to do it. You remember what Peter said, what Jesus told him? Peter said, even if everyone else forsakes you, I will never do it. That's what he said. And then that night came and some, some little servant said, aren't you one of those people with... Jesus. Oh, no, I, just, I don't know. I don't know that guy. No, not me. Right. And you can just imagine after the, the crucifixion, how low Peter was. But even after the resurrection, even because like, there's so much rejoicing with that. But even after that, Peter knows he's a failure. Peter knows that he's not qualified to be a leader in the movement anymore. And Jesus comes up to him. You read this at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you love me, Peter? And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Every time Peter says, you know, I love you. And he commissions him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. What's the message that Jesus has given Peter in that moment of darkness? God's not done with you yet, Peter. Get up and go. Get up and go. And you read the book of Acts. Who is it that speaks on the day of Pentecost? Pentecost. Who is it that heals that lame man in chapter 3? Who is it that stands before the same Sanhedrin that killed Jesus and says, we ought to obey God rather than men? That's Peter. God wasn't done with him yet, was he? Yesterday, two days ago, was St. Patrick's Day. I told the story of Patrick before, one of the greatest missionaries of all Christian history. He was 16 years old when they kidnapped him. The Irish, he wasn't Irish, he was from Britannia. But the Irish kidnapped him when he was only 16 years old and they killed some people in his household and then they went off back to Ireland and forced him to be a slave. For six years, he served the Irish before he escaped. He finally gets back to what we call England today and God calls him to go back to Ireland as a missionary. God calls him back. And he has this vision. It's like a Macedonian vision, If those of you familiar with that. He has this vision where he, where he sees an Irish person and he says, holy boy, come walk among us again. And Patrick's just like, I think God's calling me to go back to Ireland. He, and he forgives these Irish that had killed people he knew, that had enslaved him, had taken away the formative years of his life. I mean, how traumatized would you be after being forced to be a shepherd in a foreign country out in the elements for six years? How would that mess up your head? And now God's saying, I have a job for you, Patrick, is to go back to the same place you came from, to go back to the, to, the, to, the, to the savage tribes that kidnapped you. And so Patrick says, okay, I'll go. And he goes and he's like, well, I better get some training. So he goes to Gaul and he goes to a, uh, a place where he can learn the scriptures and he can learn what he needs to know. And he's awful at school. He's the kind of guy that eventually you just graduate because you're tired of seeing him in your class. Right? And he, and he gets graduated as a deacon, which is just like almost nothing in the Catholic church. I mean, there is a Catholic um, hierarchy. So you have deacons, you have um, priests, and then you have bishops. Right? So that he really needs to be at the level of a bishop if he's going to go over to Ireland. He's a deacon. He gets back home, he serves, and he says to them, send me to Ireland. And they're like, first of all, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Send me to ISIS? You know, like, you're going to go, they just kidnapped you and, and, and tortured you and everything. You, you want to go back? No. A year passes, he gets ordained as a priest. He says, send me to Ireland. Let me go. And they say, no, we're not sending you. This is, you need to let this go. You're trying, you you know what your problem is? Youthful indiscretion. You've got more passion than wisdom. That's what they say to him. Another year passes. Let me go to Ireland. No, you're not going to Ireland. Five years passes. He stays faithful. He's serving in the church in England. He's, he's, He's doing everything he's supposed to do. He says to them, let me go to Ireland. They are like, no, Patrick, you're not going to Ireland. We don't want to send you to Ireland. You've got work to do here. We, we need you here. Six years passes. Ten years passes. He doesn't give up hope. Twenty years passes. Twenty years, every year, seeking. Send me to Ireland. Talk about a, a church being a little slow to, call, to, to recognize the call of God on someone's life, Right? <laughs> Can you imagine that? 20 years. And he's saying, let me, send me as a missionary. Just let me go. Just, just bless my trip. I'll go. I'll, I'll take care of everything else. You don't have to send him any money. Just let me go. Oh, now it's a cliche. Oh, yeah, Patrick wants to go to Ireland. Ha, ha, ha. Right? It's just like, yeah, he's the guy that wants to go to Ireland. And everybody kind of laughs behind his back. 21 years passes, 22 years, 23 years. 24 years and then finally after 25 years he says to them send me to Ireland and they were like whatever go 25 years he seeks the blessing of the church to go to Ireland 25 years have you have you have you ever had something that you waited for that long Where you're praying diligently for something he prayed 25 years and they finally said all right whatever go I don't know if that's exactly what they said. That's what I imagine they said. He gets to Ireland, and for the next 30 years, he converts thousands of people. He's 47 when he gets there. He lives to 77 years old. He spends that last 30 years of his life in the most incredible move of Christianity in documented history that I know of. By the time he he dies, most of Ireland is Christian. And when he got there, they're worshiping the the demons, the pagan gods. They have the Druidic priests. I mean, it's weird when he gets there. All right. And he goes up and he preaches to those folks. And he says, look, I've I've got good news for you from a powerful king from a faraway land. You know, and he preaches to them about Jesus. And so there was a time during that 30 years that Patrick got beaten up. Where, where he's out there preaching this weird Christian stuff, and the Irish are just like, who's this weirdo? And they just beat him up. And what does what, what Patrick do at that point in his life? Does he say, well, I, 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 maybe I should have listened to my elders at the church because like, they were really skeptical, and now I got beaten up, and like my face is bleeding. No. No. He knows that God's not done with him yet. He knows God's not done with him yet. Another time he gets robbed. He gets mugged. He's walking down the road. They mug him. They take away all his money. How's he going to do mission work now? He gets back up. God's not done with me yet. Another time they capture him and they hold him for 60 days. Talk about triggering PTSD. He had been a slave six years. Now he's a slave for 60 days. They let him go. He keeps preaching. God's not done with me yet. God's not done with me yet. He keeps preaching. He doesn't quit. What about you? Is God done with you? I believe God's not done with you yet. That's what I believe. I think it's time for us to take a step of faith. I know we're all in different places in our lives. But I I think God is calling us to take a step of faith. As a group and as individuals. What's God calling you to do? God's calling each of us to do different things in our lives. What's God calling you to do? Is it to serve here on Sunday? Is it to invite someone over for dinner, a non-Christian over for dinner, to share the gospel with them? Is it to invite somebody to come here to church? Is it to teach your children the Bible? What's God calling you to do? Is it to serve the poor? Is it to clothe the naked? Is it to feed the hungry? What's God calling you to do? God's calling us to do something. It's more than just to uh, believe, but it's also to do. So what's God calling you to do? Because I believe God's not done with you yet, Matt. God's not done with you yet, Dina. God's not done with you yet, Sue. He's not done with us yet. You know how I know that? Because you're not dead. That's how I know it. I know it's really secret wisdom here. You're not dead. God's not done with you yet. You keep doing something for God. Some of you have incredible opportunities coming up in your lives. Some of you are tempted to quit right now because you've been through something. But God's not done with you yet. Don't you quit. Don't you be like Elijah with his head between his knees, leaning up against a broom tree saying, God, just kill me. I know we go through times like that, but what does God say? This guy's tired and hungry. Let him sleep, and we'll give him some food. We'll give him a word from the Lord, and then we'll send him. And you know what Elijah does? You think about this for a moment. He anoints the, this Hazael guy, and he anoints Jehu. These are both the future rulers of two nations, and they are the ones that end up killing Jezebel, end up killing Ahab, ending, end up... Killing off this evil cancer that had infected the land of Israel. And after this happens, there's nobody going to be persecuting a prophet of Yahweh. And Elijah's twice the man Elijah was. He says that. He says, "What What do you want God to do for you, Elisha? Elisha says, Give me a double portion of your spirit. Elijah's like, Man, where did I find this guy? He says, all right, if you see it when, when the, you know, I get taken up in the chariot, if you see that, you'll get it. Elijah's twice the man he is. Man for God. And so we have a huge opportunity coming up here. I don't know if you know this, but in a month we have Easter. April 16th is Easter this year. And people, for whatever reason, are going to want to go to church. Let's take advantage of that. Let's, let's bring people into God's house. Right. Because you don't know where you don't know where the where's the connection going to be made if somebody doesn't already believe. It could be an informal conversation. It could be when um, Kurt gives him the program and smiles and, and says good morning in his German accent. It could be it could be the music, wonderful ministry that we have here ministering to people's hearts could be the sermon. It could be the prayer, it could be the manifestation, something could happen, somebody comes where they break through to God for the first time in their lives, and you know what? If you break through to God for the first time in your life, you're never the same, you're never the same, because God can reach somebody and He can, he can do things in our hearts that no one else can. You could go, you could, you could go to therapy for 100 years, and in an instant God could do, pull a miracle that'll set you free, like that. This is the God we serve. Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh, the God of living hope. This is our God. It's the same God. That's what we serve. And, and he needs a bunch of Elijahs. Will you be an Elijah? God's not done with you yet. Some of you are just getting started in your walk with the Lord. Some of you have been walking with the Lord so long that it's, it's just like second nature. But God's not done with you yet. So what do you, what do you say we... Take that step of faith. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but take the step of faith. Try something new. Look, I put the chairs different this week. Some of you came in, you're, you're like, I saw Mitch, she was just like walking down the middle. Where'd my seat go, right? Claudia used to sit in the middle, now she's on an aisle. She's the first one out for a fire now. I mean, look, things are, things are different, okay? This is a small little thing. Some of you still found exactly the same spot where you (laughs) sit, But God's moving. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your vitality. We pray for revival. We pray for your strength to be among us. We ask that you give us the courage to take the step of faith. Whatever it is you're calling us to do, that you would give us what we need to do it. Give us a portion of your spirit. You're the God of Elijah. You're the God of Jesus. You're the God of the Apostle Paul who traveled all over the world. And whatever you're calling us to do, whether it's go to a far land and plant a flag on a mountain that has never heard the message of Christ, or whether it's just to help the the, the needy in our local area, or volunteer, or be a better parent to our kids. Whatever you're Whatever you're calling us to do, God, I ask that you give us, I pray that we would have the courage to take that little step of faith, or that big step of faith. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Oh, before I let you go, I just want to let you know about a couple of quick things. First of all, I do have my entire message on St. Patrick available on Restitutio. It's a previous podcast, episode number 76, called The Real St. Patrick. So check that out if you are interested in learning more about this incredibly courageous man. Also, we received some comments on episode 111 called John 1-1 Explained with John Shaneheit. John Raftos, for example, writes, Hello, Restitutio people. I loved reading through the slideshow containing all the references from reputable and respected scholars, which present objective arguments clarifying the true meaning of John 1-1. Having Greek heritage and being able to read and write in modern Greek, it was easy to identify with slide four regarding the two basic meanings of the word logos as used in the scriptures. Even though the Christian scriptures were written in common Greek, Greek that was common 2,000 years ago, the word logos as used today is basically the same and can carry with it, depending on the context, similar meanings as mentioned in slide four. Although personally not being a Trinitarian, but having been in a religion that taught that the Christ had a pre-human existence, I always considered John 1.1 as referring to God and the Christ. I realized now that I had come to conclusions from the reading of this scripture and others with preconceived ideas rather than with the full knowledge of all of the linguistic factors at play, such as the idioms of language of the time." Putting aside theological preconceived ideas of a triune God or a pre-existing Christ and using just basic knowledge of modern Greek, John Schainheit's slideshow makes very good sense today, as it would, I imagine, 2,000 years ago. Just ask anyone on the street with basic knowledge of today's Greek language who would put aside any religious bias, and they would most certainly agree with the presentation. Keep up the good work, Sean, and thanks for the time to bring together well-researched and compelling information that brings out the truth. Well, John, thanks for tuning in. It certainly is fascinating to get the perspective of a native Greek speaker when we have a question about what the New Testament Greek had to say. If you are interested in this episode and haven't listened to it yet, why not go back and check out episode 111 and get a fresh take on John 1.1 without automatically assuming later traditional ideas, but instead using the Hebrew background that we find in Psalms and Proverbs and other places in the Hebrew Bible and bringing that forward into the Gospel of John rather than reading it from a later creedal perspective. So check that out if you're interested in some theology. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast in your app or by email at restitudio.org, where you can see an archive of all previous podcasts, take a look at a number of articles and video classes. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear. We'll see you next time.